Hey everybody, welcome to Outspoken. This is episode 99, and my guest this time is my friend John Hanford. Um, he is a musician, uh, a freaking laugh riot, and one of the smartest people I know. And I know a lot of pretty darn smart people. So um, he he would probably disagree. He likes to denigrate himself, but I won't allow it. He's a he's brilliant, and you will soon see that. So um, let's see. Uh, he's going to talk about lots of different stuff, and one of those stuffs is music. He's he uh, has seen so many bands play including the Beatles. Um, and I've never seen the Beatles before, but I did take my daughter to see Justin Bieber once. Well, first of all, this is about you. This episode is for you. Oh, it's not, it's not. Bruce, you know. he's always in his, He's always hit my rising star. Totally. Um, no, I want to hear about your life, but you've know you knew Bruce for a long time, and I'm curious about how you met and and well, I just and uh, any stories that you think or any just interactions, and this can just come up throughout whatever we're talking about. But I, you know, sure. I want the focus to be on you. I want to hear about okay, your well, life. I, okay, I uh, I was uh, I, I grew up in Seattle. I arrived here in early 1950, born in a little town nearby when my dad was going to college. So he relocated here to go to grad school, and I was born right near the university. Uh, <clears throat> I what I didn't show any particular talent for music, but I was uh, what I remember of. I was deeply impressed by my mother's record collection. She was a musician in a symphony. Oh, cool! Um, what by, did she play? Well, she played clarinet and she played piano and different things. But in the symphony, she played the reeds or clarinet and sax. Uh, so she was very enamored of uh, romantic uh, Russian music, particularly. So I grew up with uh, Mussorgsky, uh, Tchaikovsky, Rimsky-Korsakov, and the occasional Ravel from early nice. modernism. And uh, my parents were concerned because... I kept listening to Pathetique Symphony over and over, the last movement, which went down in mythology as being this exposition of his tortured soul by reason caused by his homosexuality, which he which Tchaikovsky couldn't deal with. Uh, it's that's since been sort of challenged in revisionist history. But anyway, I, I would listen to that fourth movement. It's hardly chromatic, and you know, there's something going on <laughs> for a finale in a four-movement symphony. It's dark. And the album cover had, it might have, I don't know what, it was very colorful, but in dark hues, purples and blacks. And I would just stare at it. My mom got worried. You would okay. stare at it while you were listening or just? Yeah. yeah. Okay. I'd be staring under. It was one of these pull out record players out of a kind of a cabinet. And I'd stare looking at this resistor, a red resistor. I was fascinated by that. It looked kind of like a red eraser. I'd lie under there and listen to this stuff. Well, I'd hear on the radio, uh, you know, standing on the corner, watching all the girls go by this hit parade kind of stuff. Uh, how much is that doggy in the window? And then my mom answers the phone. I'm six years old. What he is? 
hey, that crazy guy Elvis Presley's on television. So we turn on the Ed Sullivan show in 56, and I see Elvis, and that's when I determine I want to grow sideburns. That Was that his first live, first televised performance? No, it was the first, uh, I th- well, he was on, I think, Milton Berle before that, and Okay. Uh, I can't, one of the uh, Dorsey brothers or something. So but, was he somewhat unknown at that point still? Or well, was he, he was reaching the record. He was selling uh, hound dog on the, on the radio. And so he was getting starting in. To climb. He was just starting mainstream and, and Ed Sullivan put him, uh, got him there. Which From is then a big time. Yeah. It was big time. So that impressed me. And then you so started. So you were how old when, when you saw that? Six. And That's then uh, you have these things in the wake, like the Pat Boone show and, you know, stuff like this. Right. And, uh, and I don't know. So that, that registered big time. And I went to a movie that Elvis was in where he gets killed and he's not in it much. And it's a pretty horrible movie. So that was the only Elvis movie I ever saw till I was probably in my thirties or forties or something. Yeah. But, if that's the first one you see, I would, yeah. I'll blame you. For- I got burned. And, uh, <laughs> You know, love me tender. He sings, and he gets. I think he's a Confederate soldier or something like that. But and he dies in the movie. Oh yeah, yeah. And I was that kind of screwed me up. Yeah, and that's no like, good. At the same time, I'm hearing these musical scores, and going to movies um, that impress me. And I always think that's uh, ignored by a lot of so-called rock musicians that are you know tribute their or their influences mm-hmm. to be you know, Jeff Beck and. Um, Hendrix and this kind of stuff. And they, or at least my age, they neglect cartoon soundtracks and movie soundtracks and Dimitri Tiomkin soundtracks. And that's a really good point. I, I've yeah. never really thought about that. Like that stuff was a huge influence on me as a, t- a really small kid, just watching cartoons. Yeah. Oh, yeah, all those movies. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And and I had no idea what it was. I just knew I loved it and it Hold helped on. move <laughs> the action. And it was like, you know, it was essential to the experience. What, 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 what? Yeah, I mean, yeah, there, were, there were great sounds. And then you had uh, um, the Miklos Rosha wrote one that uh, for Ben-Hur. And in one of these Trashoid movies, I watched a noir or something. I heard, no, wait a minute, it was uh, a Bogart movie. He was in the desert. Uh, I forget the title. But anyway, it ha- and w- with Rex Ingram and some... English actors. Anyway, you could hear these same riffs. And I looked it up thinking that turned up later, nearly a decade later in Ben-Hur. And at the time, now this is a a learning experience. When you listen to any musician or composer, uh, don't trust them. (laughs) They reinvent themselves. Stravinsky was uh, famous for this. Dylan, whoever, you know. Um, you can't take their information to the bank. But I remember Miklos Rosa saying he went and studied the ancient uh, modes um, <clears throat> the, of the uh, Roman church and possibly before that, before he composed uh, his score for Ben-Hur. These are oh, the wow. modes that you know, we refer to now, rock musicians and, and jazz artists as scales. It wasn't that simple. But anyway... So he said, that's how he based it. Well, then <laughs> when I see this, I think it was 19, God, it was, I think it might've still been in the forties, but it was about the American entrance into the war in Africa against the Germans. And uh, you could hear these same signature motifs that he, that Rosa had marbled in there. But anyway, movies were a big thing. And then we started getting 
local little bands in Seattle that were playing dances, teen dances. And, you know, this is rock and still rock and roll era. Right. And, but wait, can I go back for a second? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you're saying when you say don't trust them, when a composer is talking about like what they studied to before, you're just saying like, they just, they're just BSing through that. And well, they could be, or or reinventing themselves for a public. Okay. Or for a publisher. So the fact that this one set in Rome and this one set in Africa had the same kind of musical themes didn't make much sense. Right. Now, when I say Stravinsky was famous, okay, the most outstanding example is he writes the, he composes the Rite of Spring and it's shut down by a number of factors. Uh, The ballet was a scandal. There's a famous, you know, the famous opening in uh, the Teatro Champs-Élysées is a, well, it's a celebrated riot, as they call it. And uh, after that, it disappeared. It might have been performed a couple of times. I can't remember with the original um, choreography, which is possibly a large reason why it was booed and, you know, all kinds of ruckus in the theater. But it emerged after World War I. He couldn't really compose any for large orchestras. Anyway, there's letters <clears throat> that he wrote at the time saying, oh, God, I don't even want to think about that thing. It just makes me sick, you know. Yeah. Okay. Afterwards, it enters the concert hall as an instrumental piece, and blam! It's the big bang, big, um, big bang of Amer- of modernism, European modernism. It's exotic. It's Russian. He's Russian. The whole bit for Western Europe is they're astonished. So then he's the great. He's a great star again. You know, made right. his made his fame in Paris. So then it's like he of all the guys, so romantic in his anti-romantic, I should say, anti-romantic, vociferously anti-romantic, saying that music has no power to express anything except itself. Anything else is just clothing we've put on it, uh, convention. That's what Stravinsky said? Yeah, this is sorrow, this is anger, this is, right, whatever. It doesn't. It's really just music. It's like He thought that was all just projected by the listener? Yeah, right. And that we've been, you know, uh, trained to okay. perceive things that way, that a minor chord is sad or, or whatever the heck, you know, I don't know. Right. But anyway, after the rite, he claims, I am the vessel through which the rite passed. I, I heard, you know, this, and I wrote what I heard. And he also denied the fact that he had any much folk music in it at all, or maybe a few dabs. Now, another composer, Hungarian Bela Bartok, said, no, I think there's something there. Later on, after Stravinsky dies, they see his notes and he's, He's uh, manipulated these different folk tunes. Like traditional songs from... Yeah, but he fractured them into rhythmic uh, kind of uh, asymmetrical uh, divisions of time. And, you know, it was Stravinsky. He did this with anything he touched. And he said himself, I I don't borrow, I steal. But in other words, he would reinvent himself. At one point, he says, I want to be the Mussolini of music. Well, what do you, what do you think he meant by that? Just like a well, like own the whole show, be a tyrant. When the dictators were rising, and Stravinsky was dispossessed of his family's lands by the Bolsheviks, he was already in Switzerland and Paris, and so there he's acclaimed as a genius. Back back in Russia, he was part of Rimsky Korsakov's circle, and he wasn't a promising student, <laughs> and they rejected his works. Oh, here goes little Igor feeding us like we're this barbaric little nation uh, people over here with his right of spring, you know, which so he didn't even like himself. 
Yeah, that they that they despised that they despised him, and then he's immensely proud of it. Now he would say, I, I, you know, when he was at the turmoil when it debuted in Paris, it hurt him very much because he loved the music so much, you know. So who knows where he stands? But when he's the Mussolini of of music, uh, George Bernard Shaw, you know, a Fabian socialist, was all enthusiastic about the dictators at first. They cut through the class baloney and get stuff done. So I don't know what Stravinsky was meaning. He wanted to be, you know, a tyrant. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. He just wanted to be in charge. If you you will. Can you imagine someone saying that today, like a modern day musician? I want to be the Mussolini of music. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Bowie came close, you know. Yeah, I guess. But he would have ruled with a loving hand, I think. Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, wouldn't they all? They have a higher calling. Mere individuals are expendable. They're, They're in the way of the great vision. Right. Okay, where did I go with all this? I don't know, but I love you it. Back me up, man. Well, what's your what's where does your grasp of history come from? Do you do you read well, a lot of it? Did you study no. it? I'll tell you one. Okay, I I took a undergrad in history, and any undergrads in history know about how about how much that counts, you know? right? And there was just particular uh, histories I was interested in: English, American, and Russian, uh, and French. Apart from that, I you know I, I don't know what the hell was going on. And, and nobody, why, why uh, Russian and French? Just from your heritage, or no, not at all. Or uh, just in, what inspired that interest? Okay, good point. My parents were vos, just were uh, very conservative anti-communists, and I'd grown up with all these different theories about who was up to what in the government and all this kind of crap. So I thought, well, I really want to understand it. what are the, what what in the hell went down there and why, and were they all bad actors? Were they were they just satanic and their talent for torturing and starving, uh, uh, you know, the peasants, uh, right. What, what, what went on? So and your parents I, talked about, Oh yeah. Yeah. Like at the dinner table and so, or just, just well, like casually. When <laughs> it was always a little kitchen table. When I went to other higher class, middle-class families, I, I thought, God, these people are actually polite. They sit down at a dinner table. There's no yelling, you know. <laughs> but, but I mean, I just heard my father use the word "goddamn" literally, just casually in every sentence. Okay. Now he so, was and he was talking derisively about these other cultures in history that had or, or in the oh, present. Yeah. Or, we were English, right? But the English were no good. They were over. They're decadent. Look at them. Okay. Socialized. They're you know now here come these mop tops. Those guys can't sing or whatever, whatever it was. Was it always negative from your dad? Um, Not always. No. He thought that people like my friend Bruce Bifford did. He thought that I think particular peoples had talents and traditions, you know, that were honorable. Mm. Everybody probably. But if they hadn't been saddled by communism, you know, (laughs) and everybody had been given a promise. And so he came from Republican Unitarian background. Wow. And those guys hated FDR. My dad was in World War II. He was the only guy in his outfit that voted for uh, Dewey. Took a lot of ribbing for it. Yeah, bad. So that's the background that he came to Seattle with. Was He was grown, grew up on a farm, but it was a very, um, uh, his, that was a kind of an accident. His uh, grandfather had come out from Chicago because he had, um, I think he needed a dry, dry weather for his lungs or something. So he relocated in dry eventually in Montana and then in uh, Washington. So he grew up a farm boy around, you know, Southerners mainly that came up. And yet he was apart from them because 
these working men, according to his father and his father's father and all their brothers, uh, it was a very patrician family, that these working men were stupid. They drank, they fought at the Grange Hall, you know, they voted for FDR because FDR promised them everything under the sun. And yet they were self-made men who'd worked all their lives. And now there's more of these other people than there are of them. And so after World War II, my dad had fought in the Philippines, entered Japan, the first troops into Japan. And then after, the, after World War II, here we are getting our butts kicked in Korea. What could explain it? It was kind of like Hitler's line, which was a stab in the back after World War One, right? In a way. Because it's like the Germans never saw fighting on their own ground. They thought they were winning. Right. And so it must have been a conspiracy. So there's elements of that kind of stuff you can see pop up throughout history, I think. You know, there's no there's no other explanation. There's no there's no way that John Kennedy could have been killed by some mere schlub who happened to get lucky. That right. he's too important. That event was too huge to believe that. You know, I mean it's it's everywhere. Right. Way too yeah. many players, way too much convenient uh, changes and, and mistakes. And, you know, yeah, 9-11 or man on the moon is, is too big to be explained by the obvious. And my friend Bruce Bickford would sooner buy. I think he was tantalized by the alternative histories. Now, he if you said, hey, you know, if he was confronted by facts, he would um, he wouldn't. He, you know, he would acknowledge it, right? But some stories fascinated him so much that he'd rather believe them, you know, if they were impossible. The more outrageous, the more he was prone to want to believe it. Anyway, we're back to Bruce. But <laughs> get back to me again. Yeah. Well, you were talking about your dad and, you know, yeah, okay. his, how he, yeah, okay. what, so what that, he and your mom would talk about, and that got you well, interested. My, my mom was an FDR Democrat for working class, right? Okay. So, uh, but dad was just gung ho about this country. He's going to ragged ruin, you know? Yeah. And I had grandpa Lee and he was this Welshman who come by and he go, you know what I do? They go down to Olympia with, and, and we, what we need is a, a vigilance committee. And I'm thinking vigilance committee, but he grew up in Idaho. Yeah, it, was, it sounds like the Klan to me. Well, it was, they, there was the Klan there, but it was uh, gunfighting in the streets and mine explosions. He started off in the mine and, you know, he grew up. Oh boy, it was the old West, you know. That's amazing. Can you so, imagine being at you know being around at that time? Like what kind no, of hard living? Work, the work alone had put me away. I mean, yeah, you know, mine. Geez. I just don't know how. Like, what do you think happened to creative types during that time? They all just wound up like drunk or in jail or dead. Like well, they, they just wouldn't find a place in a society where it's like you, you know. Well, they they did. I I mean, creative types. It's like. A, I think people romanticize this so much, you know, and, 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 and even including like high intellectual uh, capacities, like, you know, there's a lot of guys in the backwoods that are, that rather go fishing, you know, yeah. they didn't go to MIT, but they might be very gifted individuals and individuals. And so the, the gifted types, well, they probably ended up teachers or they, you know, they went on laudanum like you're, you're supposed to, if you're a good romantic era hero, you know, yeah, uh, and then you convert to Catholicism after leading a lo- uh, life of debauch, right? You know all that, all those because you can wipe the slate clean. Yeah, I mean, but these are romantic ideas: drugs, alcohol, excess, uh, bisexuality, uh, genius. Uh, you know. Yeah. Well, the, the, I just the mean Byron, even... the Lord Byron trip. You know. Yeah. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, uh, 
uh, let's see how to put it, um, get enormously talented and socially a transgressor. I mean, you name it, you know. Right. Well, I guess, yeah. I incest, guess. <laughs> reputed incest, bisexuality, uh, and then combined with a, a f- phenomenal athleticism and then his gift for posy, you know, and then his enlistment for the cause of the Greeks against the Turkey. He was a, you know, and, and then the great lover, you know, England's only. Anyway, so I, I'm gone way far afield. But <laughs> well, it's just more, it's just over my head. So well, no, if you're in Idaho and you're a creative person, uh, you probably leave, or some somebody uh, shames you. I mean, I can't remember who who it was that said uh, it was kind of echoed by Frank Zappa when they said, "If your composer a composer comes to him, a young composer, what should I do?" And he goes, "Get a real estate license." Uh huh. Because, and then he said, the, the more difficult the work, the, le- the more your music suffers for it. Well, I can't remember, and this is completely, um, well, I don't know. It, I, 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 don't, I don't like uh, re- reinscribing this politically incorrect card that everybody plays. Um, but this is a politically incorrect observation, and I can't remember which poet it was by. Uh, he said, uh, art requires white, soft hands. Okay. That's an English author, I think, from the Victorian age. Well, what do we mean? We mean you're not out working a day job or like some other cockney or being a fishmonger or, yeah. or a, lame, a, you know, a miner or something. So in, in Idaho, you'd have to have enough leisure time, at least in terms of art we're used to, th- in, in Western terms, right, that this is some... A character who's sort of a special member of the tribe that does these things. Yeah. Uh, that would require enough time after your job. And if you have a family, you know, working and straining to do that, uh, to support them, to have enough time to do something. And the acceptance from them to be able to do it. Uh, yeah, exactly. And you'd have, you'd have enough uh, discretionary income if you had to finance it, you know, like it, that's, it- Charles Ives did. He he quit composing. He was a modernist composer and realized he, his stuff was never going to get heard. So he said, rather than let your children starve on your dissonances, he takes a job as an insurance salesman and invents, essentially invents the modern life insurance policy. This is in the turn of the 20th century. Anyway, where That's did I cool. go? cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, forget <laughs> it. I'm probably wrong. Remember, all, the, <laughs> all history just gets perpetually revised you know yeah by every single person who repeats it they're changing it a little bit it doesn't exist it's not a science right anyway so that was my daddy he was coming from that and i grew up here and all that so i decided well i want to study the french revolution if this was so ugly and crazy and that was very important in america's history we'll talk about that you know they're looking at the french revolution and then it became this argument between conservatives and so-called liberals Conservatives saying, you see what happens? You see where this is going? And by God, there it goes. There, Here it is. You like it now, do you? And Jefferson was painted as a pro-revolutionary. Eventually, you know, and so these, just like the Russian Revolution, it went through these different stages where they're trying to get, say, a parliament, something on the English model or the American model. And then it spins off into my dad's greatest fear, which was direct democracy, which means tyranny. 
which means eventually Napoleon. Okay. Or Lenin. So this is what I grew up with. So that's why I went to college to study history. Like, what what's going on? Can I find out? Because I'm tired of paranoia. Yeah. So once you started learning more about it, were you able to have conversations with your dad and yeah. refute some of his claims? Or well, I would just he had a uh, he's one of those guys that uh, might say astonishing things, like Bruce, mm-hmm. that are like like you say inappropriate even and he wouldn't do it my dad wasn't like bruce he'd blurt it out in right where he shouldn't be sometimes you know yeah but he would uh acknowledge that yeah and he he well for instance on uh our military standing he was uh hey look i wouldn't blame any guy if he didn't fight a war if he said no i'm not having it because he hated the military your dad said that yeah, he got in trouble for not saluting a captain or something. He was a, re- a rebellious 19-year-old when he went in. And uh, any, anyway, so... He, got, he was drafted. Or, yeah, and or, he, he was working on a farm, and it was deferred for a while, but then he got drafted. And he, I think he thought it could have been avoided, and we should have shut Japan down a hell of a lot earlier than we did or something. I, just, I can't remember exactly. But anyway, he had a chip on his shoulder. He didn't get on with the guy's that much that he was in his platoon with or anything. They were from a lot of them from big cities um, behaved uh, inappropriately uh, with the Filipina women setting up brothels. He was disgusted by it. So it wasn't this, cause I used, he didn't ever talk about the war much. I had to pluck it out of him when I got older after watching television and movies, romancing this kind of stuff, you know, and he just said it was miserable. And everybody in there was hacked off and miserable. Wow. And anyway, so he says, I wouldn't blame a guy. He wanted me to go to Canada rather than to go to Vietnam and endorse that and said, they're, they're, they don't know what they're doing over there. They're not fighting to win. You, you either get in a war and, and do it or you don't. And that's the same thing Ray Charles said. It's either you go over there and kick ass or you, or you don't go. Yeah. Anyway, so that was his take on it. And yet he said, there's no way in this world that we we can't have an armed forces. And so if there's got to be one, by God, it ought to be America that has the biggest one, you know, the best, the the big stick. Right. Yeah. If you're from there, it makes, you know, that's, (laughs) it makes perfect sense.
what, so what did you do when the draft was happening and you were of well, age? It, well, I was in college and my band I was playing with, I, you know, became um, enlisted in the rock and roll uh, business and then, <laughs> you know, different R&B bands. And so we were starting to get gigs out of town and I'd go up to Bellingham, which is a few hours away in winter and then drive back to go to classes the next morning. So I asked, I went to the draft counselor that was available at the, the uh, student union building and said, if I take a quarter off, we were in the quarter system. If I take a quarter off at university of Washington, will I be drafted? Oh no. So I took it off immediately. You know, here I am report for service. So I had a, a, a case of uh, psoriasis and I went to a shrink and surprise he wrote and he, in other words, I got a, a mention of this doctor Schimmelbush uh, who was friendly to, uh, you know, uh, draft Dodgers. And so I went to him, he, he told him I was nuts. And then uh, I had the psoriasis. So I went and reported for my, uh, you know, inspection and all this. And I was with four other guys. One of them had uh, evidently had polio. He was in a leg brace. The other guy I knew from my high school who was just cuckoo, looked cuckoo, acted cuckoo. <laughs> and here I am. And maybe another guy. And so I go before the doctor and he's looking at my documentation. And he goes, well, I'm feeling... Uh, what do you say? A, a generous today. And I walked out of there just astonished because generous. In other words, you think it's a crack, a crock. Yeah. Even you think he also knows he would be sending you off it, to your death. Yeah. Yeah. It's punishment. Right. And, and yet, so here I am in the ranks of, uh, Bill Clinton and, and, uh, probably, uh, Trump and all these other bastards. <laughs> they took the, the smart route, stayed in college, right? Yeah. And, and somehow wrangled a deferment or something, you know? Well, good for you. I mean, well, I- yeah, but still, and this is, it was, it was a, a when people want to have the time life history of the 60s, it's all about, you know, chirpy flower power and all this stuff or how we shut down a war or whatever we is and, you know, right. them, we and all this crap. And, I'm here to tell you, it was demoralizing. Uh, in, in high school, the, the districts that our high school drew upon were both blue collar and a highly um, professional class that shared the same area with the sons and daughters of university professors. So there was a, ver- a very lively um, kind of liberal uh, contingent. And then there was these other guys whose dads had gone to war, blue collar guys, and were proud to do their service or figured, you know, it'd be good for them and all this kind of old school idea. And then there were the smarty pants who thought, you know, no way. And they were, you know, some, a lot of them anyway, were, you know, four point students or advanced students. And they went to college and became doctors and, or went in the arts. And meanwhile, the guys down, down in the basement of the high school were in the gas engines program. Right. These are the guys who went off and fought the war. Yeah. It, it was terrible. There was a smugness about the hip wazee in the high school. You know, they were smoking weed. Hey, hip to the war, man. Yeah, man. And uh, 
you know, and all this stuff. And, and uh, so they prided themselves on not being stupid and fooled about the war. And I thought everybody was being fooled about the war too. But I didn't enjoy seeing this kind of disdainful attitude towards the, the non-college material. You, you were too, I think, young to know this kind of crap. But it was like, you know, you were college material. I, I started the college, I started high school. My first quarter, I earned 0. 0.50, only to be bested by my drummer friend, the schizophrenic, who earned 0. 0.25. <laughs> and we were proud. We were down at the bus stop. Hey, check this out. Right. Yeah. So then later. The lowest I, of low yeah, Fs. Yeah, exactly. And so it was by my senior year that I'm looking at NOM. That's, the, that's when the Tet Offensive went down. So I think, uh, no, thanks. Start studying. yeah, so I pulled it out. But in other words, that was available for me. I had middle-class parents that could afford to help me go to school. School was 500 bucks a year or something. Right. In those days you could join a band with four other nincompoops and get into a house right by the school. And each guy would pay 50 bucks a month. That's beautiful. You know? Yeah. Gone with the wind. And you could actually earn a living being a musician. That's gone with the wind. Yeah, for all but all but a few. Yeah. Just I mean the just the local scenes could support because when the boomers reached uh their majority, they could get into taverns. And so those were the you know, the low life beer beer guzzling joints. So you got college students and all of a sudden, these guys want to hear rock and roll. They don't want to hear lounge music or a jukebox. So you had a market booming for bands. And you could, you know, everyone was assured of joining a band and getting some gigs and maybe enough on the dance circuit and the taverns to actually earn a living wage. Then another thing opened up. By the time the boomers are getting out of college and getting married and stuff, they're going to liquor lounges, class A liquor lounges formerly the bastion of old people right. who listen to lounge music and, and sweet jazz and pop tunes. So the rock and rollers start getting in there as long as they wore uniforms and did this kind of mainstream kind of stuff. But anyway, for decades, a couple of decades, you could make a living. And, you know, and you'd have a situation where you would play for a week, two weeks, a month, two months in one location. Six nights a week. Steady gig. Wow. Steady gig. So you're working on your stuff. You can experiment. You're learning everything from your tactiles, you know, your fingers, how they feel on certain things, how to tune your guitar in the middle of a tune, um, you know, how to avoid getting your uh, lips scorched on the mic. I mean, just all kinds of stuff, you know. You That's had to cool. to work. It's all gone now. At least it is in Seattle. You have four bands that pay the club to have them come on and then have to provide their own audience and take their own cover charge at the door. Uh, and just get a we cut were, of it. <laughs> weren't we on? Uh, well, so, well, Lennon, let's go. Uh, Stravinsky. Okay. <laughs> let's go. Let's talk about that. You were, you were a performing musician for a number of those years, right? Yeah. I started in uh, 15. I was, uh, well, I saw the Beatles when I was 14 and, um, but I wasn't, compelled to pick up a guitar. In fact, I was reluctant to go to the Beatles. Uh, How come? Well, I, I was an Americanist and, and uh, surprise. And I liked, uh, uh, like when I heard Twist and Shout, I'd heard the Isley Brothers before that. You know, and I thought, oh, that, that ain't that good. But I, I did love the music 
but I thought, well, you know, that's, isn't that stuff for like going to girls and hearing them scream? Yeah. My friend at the last minute, he called me up and he's, and I had an offer from another friend whose dad worked in the people that uh, produced the show. And I thought, no, I'm cool, man. And so, so you you declined your first offer to go. Yeah. Even then. And those were like early, not front row, but about fourth row back. And, uh, in what it, arena, where was it in, in the, what was called the Coliseum, which is the now sport the key, the, key arena. Okay. It was it where a sports team played or was it? For yeah. Musical? Uh, wait a minute. Uh, no, it hadn't been doing that yet. I, it was just seated, uh, a stage and a bunch of seats and maybe, I don't know what went on there apart from concerts, but, or, you know, they, they had a lot more concerts. You know, I saw Dylan there later, a year later. Holy shit. But, so but you were anyway, fourth row back at the Beatles show? Well, what happened was my friends went and my neighbor calls up the day before and is at this store called the Bon Marche, a department store. And he goes, they got tickets here. Shall I get one? Uh, yeah, okay. So he gets them. Well, we lucked out because these were the last tickets and they were directly behind the Beatles. Beatles were on one end of this Coliseum. We're directly behind them. And... On the show for two fifty, two two dollars and fifty cents, I think, were the black uh, Bill Black combo, which now I understand Bill Black wasn't a part of, <laughs> but that was the guy who backed up Elvis on bass. But his band, his namesake, with Reggie Young, I found out on guitar. They opened up with a little instrumental bit of number, and then comes this band called the Righteous Brothers uh, or singers, and they back them up. Now this is before the Righteous Brothers had. Big hits. I think they might have had uh, Little Lap Lupe Lou by this point, but they were yet to get with the Phil Spector wall of sound with uh, You've Lost That Love and Feeling. That would be in the winter, about now, or just, yeah, about now in 1964. That was their big breakout. So this is before that. And then a third on the bill was Jackie DeShannon, who had written Needles and Pins. She sang What the World Needs Now for Bacharach. Uh, she was a songwriter. Uh, when you walk in the room, the searchers covered that. Uh, she was a great songwriter from Tennessee. She sang, and in between these acts, these diff- various uh, disc jockeys would come and rile up the crowd. And they'd say something as their acts are changing. They'd say something like, "I was talking to George backstage," and the whole place would explode. You know. Uh-huh. The Beatles come out, and there's this flash of little Kodak Instamatics. Now, remember, I'm behind the Beatles. So this flash is just blinding, and the noise deafening. And they come out, and they do 20 minutes. And afterwards, somebody goes, there they go. And there's a, there's a panic. It's like a herd. And I'm in that herd, and I realized if I fell, You're you know, for, it's yeah. Trample City. yeah. So they, cause they left be, like behind you, they, they like went past you to get out some back door and then every yeah, well, I was in the middle of them leaving, you know, and it's like this big, huge mob of crazed teenagers. It was like the opening of help. Or oh it? yeah. Oh yeah. Times a <laughs> hundred. Cause you're and, inside. Holy shit. And, and they, at the concert, they had uh, a bunch of gobs, sailor, sailors from what was then Sandpoint Naval Air Station. And they formed a cordon around the stage to ensure that no one would come and run up on the stage with the Beatles. Well, I saw girls being carried out fainting, you know, and I thought, God almighty, this is August. 
because <laughs> yeah. that was August 64. They'd already debuted in February on Ed Sullivan. And I thought, surely it'd be calmed down. And plus, we're American, aren't we? We're not going to go nuts like the British. You know, it's been a while, hasn't it? Anyway, so one girl got her steam up, and I could see her running down the aisle. And she leapt over or between the sailors and got on the stage and crawled towards John Lennon. And he's shaking his hand or shaking his foot, you know, having fun with it. Um, So it was very memorable. But I was a keyboard guy. I'd taken classical piano when I was a kid. So I I wasn't about getting an electric guitar. But I got an electric piano for $110. It was a Wurlitzer. This is before... Fender Rhodes came along. This was the, uh, Ray Charles had used it on What I Say. And uh, later Joe Zavanil would use it on uh, Mercy, Mercy, Mercy for um, Cannibal Adderley. So at that point, it was the state of the art in terms of electric uh, keyboard instruments. Pathetic. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I got it. And then away I we went, you know, playing dances and, uh, well, playing dances, basically. So you had you were in a band in college or several bands or how? all through uh, yeah all through high school all through college. Oh, that's and, awesome! You started that early. Yeah, well, what was awesome was that I'd earn fifty bucks a week. Yeah, you're making and, a living and having fun, having a having a riot, right? And forming close friendships and you know a whole bit playing toga parties. Since we were u- near the university, the sororities and fraternities would hire our band. Oh, right. That's but cool. one thing, uh, one thing I, I wonder if anybody out there in Radio Land can can share this experience. When I was the the only radio I had functioning in junior high was my dad's uh, AM radio in his car. So when I heard the Beatles, I was fascinated by the instrumental tracks. I was always more fascinated by the instrumental stuff going on. Really, mm-hmm. the I loved the melodies and the singing, but it was fascinating to hear what the hell is that? Because I couldn't separate. I didn't know what a bass guitar was from a so-called rhythm guitar. You had two rhythm guitars layered. You had a you had these individual single note things happening in guitars. You had a piano or a distorted kind of Hammond organ mixed in. And so I'm getting it out of this AM speaker, which doesn't really have bass frequencies. It's kind of a, yeah. a trick of the ear. Right. But, so it it's sounds always, like, always tinny. Yeah, but it sounds like this gargantuan instrument back there that's throbbing and pulsating and stabbing, and uh, I could, you know, it just blew me away. So one day I went. My friend uh, who had offered to take me to the Beatles the first time, his dad was in a, a record releasing company in Seattle, the biggest one. I went to his house and they had a full blown stereo system. This was in the summer of '64, and at that point they had. Um, what were called, I think it was, uh, it wasn't simulated stereo. Anyway, some of the Beatle records, you could isolate the inst- the instrumental from the vocal tracks. Okay. And he had it on the wrong selection at one point. Uh, I mean, he had it just on one channel. So I was hearing just the instruments. Wow. That's cool. You know? And sometimes the guitars had enough distortion and sustain. I thought, is that an organ or something? I mean, it just I was just fascinated by it completely. So as I worked in bands playing organ, occasionally we'd want to do something by the Rolling Stones or uh, Spencer Davis. I, I don't know who. And uh, they, it would actually kind of like a second guitar. And so I, st- I bought a firebird guitar for 50 bucks anybody out there that's a guitar aficionado will 
Oh boy, it was cherry, fifty bucks. What would and it I, be worth today? Well, I've seen them listed for fifteen grand. That was some years ago. Of course, I don't think you're going to get that, but you know, kind of ridiculous. It wasn't a very good guitar. It had one pickup, the bridge pickup, and it's you know very thin sounding. I couldn't, I didn't know, but I loved it, and so I played it. And so then our guitar player, uh, he he got more interested in impregnating his girlfriend and drinking a lot and driving his hot rod Mustang and would leave his guitar over at our rehearsal spaces. Sometimes it was my house. So I'd pick it up and start learning. And then a friend of mine had credit at a store and got a fuzz tone. Wow. You know, so I I plugged that in and that was a distortion device, you know, heard on the Yardbirds and, and satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And so here's this other dimension of, um, you know, new kinds of timbres on the guitar. And yeah, so it I kind of changes that. everything, doesn't it? It does. And so the, the other guitar players out uh, doing all these shenanigans and becoming quickly becoming an alcoholic at 16. And so, um, so then the next band, after I got to high school, I became the principal guitarist by default. And so I started guitar about, uh, 18 really you know nice and, and you've been playing ever since yeah love it to death it's, and you, it's my communion when i play in a band it's the closest i get really to to something you know well as an only child it's like um i'm communicating with guys that really make sense <laughs> beyond words yeah well and with with like i mean my experience with music is that you're you're transported to a different dimension like it like it doesn't really you you're not thinking in any of the same terms that you do when you're in regular life yeah and the thing is just like our friend bruce bickford you can throw words at music all day long and they're just pathetic the words are too puny to 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 wrap around it you know yeah you could never describe what you're doing or how it feels or any part of it it's like every it's got everything available it feels like you know that's how it feels to me you're just tapped in to the source and you're just and like you're this. looking at your brother and you may have had a fight with that guy like you know oh there were some instances i played in the whalers which are a famous garage band but i played them in the when the new century hit for a decade until we all started dying off but i thought I, I witnessed yeah i, I god bless him but i, I witnessed uh these fracases, we went down to Memphis to play and we were in the green room and a very bitter uh, argument broke out between the drummer and the bass player. And it was just like, you couldn't have timed it anymore for a a sitcom. They're in the middle of this huge beef and I'm sitting there as the Libra trying to mediate or keeping things cool. The door swings open. Hey, you guys are on. And we're we're following the great R&B singer, William Bell. You don't miss your water till your run, uh, well runs dry. Oh, yeah. There's a huge following in Memphis. And so we're these sh- uh, schlubs from the Northwest. They think we're like lumberjacks or that we're connected to to Kurt Cobain at this point. Right? Oh, okay. So th- and we're like 30, 40 years older than Kurt Cobain. He's, he's a, a cipher to us. You know, <laughs> we never listened to it. We never, you know, but here we are. Anyway, so we go on and they've just, so the door opens up. You guys are on. 
And so the the bass player, everybody starts running. The bass player turns to me and goes, what is it with this guy? Talking about the drummer. We hit the stage. It's row for your lives, man. It's like, uh, you know, William Bly, Captain Bly, rowing for Tafoa. Run for your life. or <laughs> row, row for your life. You're all in the same boat. Yeah, as soon everybody as you hit the stage. Oars. Everything's forgotten. <laughs> That's amazing. Like seconds after a, a blowout. You're- Absolutely. It's spiritual, man. I was sent to Catholic church, but the Catholic school, because I was a truant and troublemaker in junior high. That's, so why, I, that's why you were sent? Yeah. And so um, I went to Catholic school. Before we go, my mom says, now, John, their religion is very close to ours and Episcopalian. Well, I get there and it's like uh, soon to be Ash Wednesday. And there's it's still the Latin chant. I'm an Italian order of nuns teaching us. They fly the Italian flag. They're from Piemonte and different Italian areas, a lot of them. Some of them are American. They are argue. Super strict? Uh, no. Oh. They were strict about certain rules. And you knew what the score was. And so if they clumped you on the head with their rings, I earned it. Okay. As opposed to public school where they humiliate you or the kids you go with will beat you up, pants you, uh, are snide if you wear the wrong pair of ch- uh, if you don't wear Levi's, you're a dipshit. Right. They'll, they'll humiliate you worse. Yeah, any way possible to humiliate. There was none of that in this in this small little class, one class per grade, 20 people in a class. They'd been there their whole lives, most of them. I was this proddy dog coming in, and I made friends immediately. I love these people. I still do. The nuns were very good to me. And I never saw any of the stuff where people say I'm a recovering Catholic and the nuns were cruel and twisted and sexually frustrated and took it out on us. I, I didn't see any of that. Oh, that's interesting. 
So I saw people that integrated God into every lesson, you know, mathematics or, or whatever. But also, they we knew how to f- had fun. We played soccer. That wasn't allowed in the pu- that didn't have a program in the public schools. Just stuff like that. But it was this Latin, Latin prayer, incense, all these stuff that you know my dad had thought was just hocus pocus. Because truth to tell, his dad was a Unitarian. His grandfather and grandmother were Unitarians. But my grandfather broke down for love of an Irish Catholic. Okay, so that dad, changes things. Right? Dad, was, dad was reared in the Catholic Church. He despised it. Hmm. And then he got out. He quit uh, at 18 or whatever it was. But he, uh, anyway, so, but he never criticized. He just said something like, it's pathetic, those women giving their lives away for the nunnery or something like that. That's all I ever heard. He never, no. But, he he, was, but they sent you there in order to whip you into shape. That was the yeah, idea. Yeah, exactly. And it was a private school, and so maybe that cost a hell of a lot compared to zero for public. It was maybe a few hundred dollars a year, yeah. you know. But I was an only kid; they could afford it, so I was sent trying to get him, trying to get me in order, and uh, you know, trying to live up to my college material capabilities. <laughs> yeah. Your son is college material. You've been assessed. Yeah. Well, that's assuming that you know it's not something to do with them telling the parents what the parents would love to hear. You know, I don't know. Yeah, that happens, I'm sure. Yeah. But I, I loved it there. It was a, a oasis, and that's where the Beatles, I'm meeting at, a, a, meeting at a, a lunch table in the cafeteria, and my good friend uh, says, hey, have you heard about the Beatles? What? Yeah, they got heads. They Their heads kind of look like ice cream cones <laughs> or something. I'm going, what? So then I go to the orthodontist, which I've started, because I had uh, really screwed up teeth. That's the uh, the English blood, I guess. Right. Really screwed up. Like I have some the, of that too. The teeth, teeth were not coming down. They're not descending. You know, you've heard of non-descendant testicles. Well, I had teeth that weren't coming out. So I had to have all this stuff done. So that day, I go to the orthodontist and I see this Look magazine. And I open it up and here's this article. It says, oh, those beetles. And they're shaking their heads. And their hair's going all over the place. And then I see this picture of these jelly babies hitting the stage, you know, and, the, and read the article. And then I start hearing them everywhere on the radio. All at once. All at once. And the hit song for December was It was a singing nun who was singing about St. Dominic, the founder of her order. And the Beatles start to come and they overtake her as this other kind of novelty, right? Because you could see America or something was interested in novelties. You had these goofy songs. You had uh, Q Sakamoto that had the Sukiyaki song that summer, if anybody knows that. Later done by three degrees with American, with English lyrics. But then you had the singing nun and, you know, these oddball things and, you know, the uh, monster mash, the the, the different kind of things. So then here comes the Beatles, right? And they've got the whole nine yards. I mean, they got the package. Right. They, they got a look. They got a tremendous sound, phenomenal songwriting, energy, positive. You know, it was everything. And it was a sea change. That's putting it mildly.
after the Beatles, I, at Beatles, I saw Jimi Hendrix in his first return concert. He was a Seattle homeboy. And he came in uh, early 68, I think. And uh, yeah, and uh, performed at his hometown. And he was on with, uh, your brother will enjoy this. He was on with the uh, uh, Soft Machine. Yeah, I remember. So they opened up and they were a head spinner because I'd, I'd never heard anything sound like that or even the concept. It was a trio without guitar. Stop the presses. You know, no guitar player. And with Hendrix, not only did I greatly enjoy him and just, you know, like everybody, but also I was just starting guitar. And I wondered about, like, say, Purple Haze. Do you play it up here? Do you play it down there? Or what's he doing? So I saw he was gripping the guitar, you know, in midships, doing that opening famous lick. So I thought, okay, then you can play up there. So I started learning and thank God I did this. I pretty much learned all the pitch names and note choices on the guitar all the way through the neck. Um, and I had piano. So, uh, you know, it really helped. Yeah, I bet. Uh, now, now I'm getting foggier in my, <laughs> in my old age. Up the neck, I'm kind of getting foxed once in a while. But that was really important. And the next thing was, I next big item was, well, I saw Hendrix three times uh, the first, the last time I was shut out for lack of funds. But oh, <laughs> anyway, was uh, it, I mean, was it just insane? Was it by that point? Was no, it? No, no, it was very well mannered. Oh. And uh, because we were serious, uh, the boomers were taking themselves seriously as artists now after the Beatles. Right. So you didn't rush the stage and act silly or do anything. You were there as a listening audience for now rock album type guys. Right. Okay. I don't know what I don't know what Paul Revere and the Raiders was doing if they were dancing or whatever, but you know Hendrix was heavy, right? So no, this was uh, you know an, uh, initiates to the mysteries of psychedelia and blues and stuff like that. Okay, so there's more but, like staring and and oh yeah, deep listening. Yeah, yeah people were high. Okay, you know, show up stone and stuff, and uh, but you know that makes it, for a peaceful concert. Yes, right, but. I also, the big noise for me was, I think I saw James Brown about three times in the 60s. Holy shit. More to follow. But that was, now that was the music that raised the hair on my arms. I can't put it any better. It was like, that stuff was just beyond, well beyond description, you know? And he's kind of compartmentalized in the history of rock as, you know, the, the Beatles and the Hendrix and the Stones were these innovators. Well, he changed the landscape. Yeah, James Brown and his band. I mean, you know, and I just I drank that. I ate that with a pitchfork. I mean, it was just everything I ever wanted to be. If I could have got a job playing organ in a in a band like that, that would have been my future. So, what, do you feel like it was the the organ that gra- that was there a specific part or just the way that their band? I mean, the bands were amazing. The yeah, band, and I didn't understand. It took, it took a tyrant to make that happen. <laughs> right. You know, that, that it was so democratic that it was like instead of blazing guitar gods and stuff, you had a saxophone from Maceo Parker that would lift your butt out of your chair. And the, the drum energy, having two drummers at simultaneously at some points. Uh, but it was that everybody had their integral part. You don't vary from, from it. 
and, and woe betide the guy who does, because he's going to get fined. That's for one thing. I didn't know that. Oh, but about every, James Brown, that he would yeah, find his band? Yeah. You get out of line, hey, you don't play too much. Right. You have an appointed duty here on the one, you know, whatever, you know. But uh, it was that it was a um, an impossibly uh, driven rhythmic machine, the organism. It was like everybody had their little part. Well, if a guy varied from that, what's the point? It was like making this just juggernaut of, of uh, rhythm. And plus you had these familiar instruments from rhythm and blues. Sure, the guitars, he had two guitar players. They were crucial, but everybody was. Yeah. The soloist was basically just the uh, saxophone player, unless Brown got on the organ and loomed off a bit. But, you know, or they'd go to a drum solo. Well, the, the drumming on there is, uh, is just unbelievable. I mean, they're- that that uh, ruined my junior and senior years in high school because I'd be doing that. You know, that's what was important to me. Yeah. No, the rest of it was secondary. <laughs> yeah. Does, uh, I mean, they, they're responsible for probably the most sampled drum loops in all of music history. Just the, some of the ingenious little uh, fills and stuff, that, uh, you know. Oh, oh, I've read. I, I, you know. So you got to see see them in their prime. Absolutely in their prime. And that was when Cold Sweat, Cold Sweat came out. Again, Papa's got a new brand new bag, changed a hell of a lot in 65. But when he came out with uh, Cold Sweat, and then the Cold Sweat Live is what I just went ape for. And that came out in the summer of 67, I think, that live album, second album at uh, uh, the Apollo. But that those beats that those guys came up with, it just, you know. Yeah, mind-blowing. Oh God Almighty! You went. It was spiritual, man. I, I felt like it was just. I'm getting kind of chills talking about it. And here's the thing: uh, you go to Hendrix. Who are you going to see there? You're going to see teenagers and early twenties, and they're going to be largely white. And you go to the Beatles, and those are teenagers or and tweens, yeah. and largely white. You go to James Brown, and this is the height of the so-called generation gap. And you see the, a whole community. You see little kids, grandpappies, and grandmothers, kids my age. You know? That's cool. Was, yeah, it was just a, it was really, here's their man, soul brother number one, the hardest working man in show business. Right. With his Learjet. So everybody's got to go see him. If you can see him. Get his hair done before and after the, I mean, the whole rap on him, you know, the whole history. So, but that, there was tons after that. I mean, Cream and uh, Arthur, the crazy world of Arthur Brown. Uh, what was it like? So you saw Ginger Baker play live? Yeah. Well, I saw him with Cream and then I saw him with uh, uh, Blind Faith. And then I saw him at the very end of his life. He played a jazz club here and he was hobbling on. He had to have his uh, friend... Uh, get him to the drum stand. Right. He and used that a cane crazy. at that point, right? Yeah. That, that was interesting because he had, he, he, he said, uh, he apologized. He said, if you can imagine him apologizing for anything. I can't really. Yeah. Well, he apologized because he said, oh, you know, it's a, a rented kit. And yet, you know, and he wasn't doing anything that colorful. 
but you could tell just the way he, the energy or something he had. I, I don't know drums enough to to describe it or analyze it, but you could tell, my God, that's him, you know? Yeah. Just the kind of the relationship between his snare volume and his bass drum or whatever. Oh, I know. The other, the other major thing was the mothers. Oh yeah. When did you see them? Well, I found out, I told your brother, I thought it was new year's Eve, but it was actually, I think, uh, February of 1969. And this had what I thought was the finest lineup which had two drummers, uh, Jimmy Carl and Billy Mundy and Don Preston and Bunk Gardner, Ian Underwood, uh, Roy Estrada, Frank. Um, let's see. I'm not sure if, oh, a motorhead Sherwood. Uh, I'm not sure if any other horn player was in. Anyway, but it was a, <clears throat> it was a midnight concert and they'd already played an earlier set. They were preceded by two bands. One was the Get uh, Guess Who. They had yet to release their blockbuster single releases like uh, um, These Eyes. No Sugar Tonight, is that no what sugar it is? Tonight. All, all that stuff, right. So they were unknown. So you can imagine a, 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 an audience that comes for Frank Zappa. Right getting these guys they were not welcome they were booed even though they had a great drummer they were booed and uh the lead singer uh whatever his name is plays flute he tried to get in a fist fight with one of the hippies in the front they had to pull him away so it was a bit of a dark shit show yeah. then uh comes this band alice cooper oh, man. and they come on with a strobe light and these guys have hair down to their keisters, and I think they're girls. And they were in uh, Silver LeMay. So this was early when they were on the Bizarre label or whatever they were. And um, so they play. Frank gets up at the midnight. Now, they, the mothers had already done an earlier concert that same day before these other bands, I think. So he gets up and he approaches the mic and he says, uh, well, I know you're all tired of hearing a bunch of rock and roll by now. Boo! You know, well, then he extemporizes. He has a kid that went to a Catholic high school named Blanchette and he's just graduated and he's driving a taxi cab. So he has this guy come up to the mic and we're seated. My friends and I are seated above the band in this kind of gallery. Like it was like for a theater, we have loges or box seats, box mm -hmm. seats, right? So we're over there, right on the uh, stage left above them. And Frank has his gold top Les Paul and kind of like a red uh, shirt uh, jacket like uh, James Dean wore in Rebel Without a Cause. And he's and so the guys, the kids on the microphone, the taxi driver starts narrating these fares he's had or something. I can't hear what he's saying very well, but Frank starts conducting the band with his gestures to make these sounds that he thinks are appropriate for the guy's story. Mm-hmm. And then he would like turn his hand over, palm up. Okay, say another phrase. And the kids are going nuts. They're loving it. Then they launch into stuff like uh, King Kong. I go ape shit. Uh, pardon my French. And, you know, it, it's off to the races. And the most provocative guy in there was really Don Preston for me. Because before synthesizers and this kind of stuff, he had, it was Rube Goldberg stuff, right? He had, a, he had an echoplex and he had all these crazy ass machines that would make these electronic 
sounds. Yeah, I, I loved it. I was in hog heaven. So I would go back uh, and see those guys. I think I saw Frank altogether four times with different different outfits, never with that outfit again. That was my favorite. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my friend John Hanford, part one. Um, Stay tuned for the next episode, part two, in which he will talk about uh, our friend, well, the friend through which I ultimately met John, uh, Bruce Bickford. So if you don't know who he is, uh, please treat yourself to some of his unbelievable animation. Um, You can look him up in places where you look things up. And uh, you can also hear me interview him way back when. And you can also watch a movie called Monster Road that's about him, a documentary, made by one of my other interviewees and friend, uh, Brett Ingram. So, and then, of course, I have to thank my brother again and my friend Aaron, who are the reason that I met John. Um, And each of them have also been on the show. Uh, My brother Eric White and my friend Aaron Guadamuse, who's been on it twice. And I want to thank John for providing music for this episode. He was the third of the three interludes. Um, Beautiful stuff and beyond my abilities in terms of production. So um, you may have noticed that it stood out a little bit. And uh, what else? I want to also thank John's wife, Debbie, who I interviewed just prior to this episode, number 98. And uh, if you want to listen to any of those of the people I mentioned, then go for it. You may may enjoy it. You may not, um, but I think you will. But what do I know? Uh, anyway, Hammond and Holland. Uh, I want to say a couple other things. Um, well, first of all, I love you. You're great. You're the best ever. Um, and that is all I want to say right now. Because why say something else after that? Okay, I'll see you in the next episode.